listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Thanks, guys. That was fantastic. All right, let's go. First Peter chapter 1. If you are using one of the Bibles in the chair rack in front of you, you can find 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12 is where we'll be today on page 1014. And by the way, as we say every Sunday, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that Bible and keep it as your own. We'd love for you to, to read that Bible and, uh, and use it. So imagine with me for a moment if one of those emails from Nigeria about a promised inheritance of $1.7 billion (laughs) from some heiress that if you would just give your bank account number for them to transfer the money into. Imagine if that email was legit. And just imagine if you sent your uh, your bank account information to that esteemed lawyer who is handling the inheritance that now is yours, if you would just send them your account information. And imagine if in a week, actually, like actually, $1.6 billion was transferred into your checking account. <laughs> would, you, would you live differently in light of that? Oh, come on now. Of course you would. I mean, to some degree, wouldn't you? I can see I'm dealing with a super spiritual crowd here this morning. (laughs) I would. I would. First thing I would do, if I had some huge inheritance, I I would pay off the debt to this building that we own. And then I would think about some personal things that I might want to do. Uh, I have a 15-year-old son who is going to be 16 in a little under a year, and he will be driving. And so we're kind of wondering what he's going to drive. I think he'll probably take the truck that I've been driving for about 12 years. And and I've been thinking about what type of of car I would get when I pass the truck down to him. I'm thinking kind of a used, maybe like a Toyota Camry you know, Avalon, Corolla, something around in that range, maybe 2008, 2009. Friends, if I had a billion dollars on my bank account, I'd, I'd, bump, that, I'd bump that up a little bit. <laughs> you know? I'd get a brand new truck as big as you can get, and I would trick that puppy out. Let's just be honest. A little guilty pleasure, a little treat to myself. Would you act differently? Well, I think that the point of Peter's words to us this morning are that, but on a far grander and far more eternal scale. This morning, Peter is going to argue from what I think is one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible about our inheritance in Christ and how that should inform our present reality. Okay, so I've got three 
points that I'm going to hang everything on as we look through this text, and they all start with the same letter. I never do that. And some of you are overjoyed because you wish I would do that more. Jay Hearn, who's in my community group, is always re-preaching my sermon to me later on in the week, how I could have crafted it better with words that rhyme. So this one is for people like you, Jay. So we're going to hang our thoughts on three words, three statements. The first is a promised future. A promised future in Christ. The second is a present reality. And the third is a prediction long ago. A promised future, a present reality, and a prediction long ago. So in just a few sentences, the summary of, I think, this whole text is is that Christians who are in Christ have a promised hope and inheritance and future that is so glorious and so certain that when they realize it, it anchors them to endure no matter how harsh the present reality is. And oh, by the way, this promised future has been predicted long ago in the scriptures. Well, let me pray and then we'll, let me read and then we'll pray. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith, for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Oh, what a glorious paragraph. One sentence in the original language of Greek handed down to us thousands of years later. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us see wondrous things. Father, we come to you in humility and joy, a certain gravity and gladness. And I echo Doug's prayer from this morning during our call to worship 
that for my brothers and sisters in this room who are already believers in Jesus, that you would stir our affections for Christ and that we would worship you and love you more earnestly. And I pray for my friends in this room who are not yet born again to a living hope. I pray that by your pleasure and your kindness and your power, you would give the gift of faith and repentance, and you would give open eyes and open ears and a willing heart so that my friends who came into this room dead in their sins might leave this room alive in Christ forever. I pray that you do these things for the glory of your name and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So first, a promised future. There's a few things that I want us to see about this promised future. And what is this promised future? This promised future is, Peter describes it there, as our living hope. It's a living hope. It's our inheritance that he describes as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is our salvation, our redemption in Christ, our our resurrection in Christ. We have been dead in our sins, and for Christians who are trusting in Jesus, they have been made alive in Christ. Our inheritance isn't just a sort of thing. It's not a state. It's not just the forgiveness of sins or right standing with God, although all of those things may describe our our right, our present, our state with God, but ultimately I think it's, it's described at the very end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21 where there's this beautiful description of eternity for Christians. In verses 1 through 4 it says that heaven comes down to earth and God dwells with his people and he is with them, God with us, and there will be no more Sickness, there will be no more tears, there will be no more pain. God will be with his people. Our inheritance is God himself, Jesus. It's not a place, it's not a thing, it's a person, it's the Trinity. It's dwelling with God forever. That's the state, the inheritance, the living hope, the salvation for a Christian. So a few things that that Peter says about this promised future that I think are really important for us to see. The first is, is that this salvation or this living hope or this inheritance is a new birth that happens to us. So this promised future, salvation, is a new birth that happens to us. Notice what Peter says there. He says that we have been born again. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Friends, if you are a Christian, it is not because of something that started within you. It's because of something that started outside of you. Salvation happened to you. You didn't make it happen. And in fact, the Bible, Jesus uses this analogy in John 3, and Peter uses it here. It's like physical birth. Just as you didn't have any Say, in your physical birth, salvation comes to you from the outside according to God's mercy. Friends, to be born again means that a Christian has a new life that has been given to them, not merely an improved life. 
This has all sorts of implications because I think our culture is very confused on what it means to be a Christian. They think it's kind of like life 2.0. It's not life 2.0. It is new life in Christ. It has come to us from the outside, not because of anything good in us, but according to his great mercy. Salvation happens to us. It's a new birth that happens to us. Secondly, I think we see of this promised future, this salvation, this inheritance, is that salvation is secured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look again at what Peter says there. He says that according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead the dead. Notice Peter's focus and notice what he does not say. He does not say that we were born again because we started to decide to clean up our life and get our act together. Certainly that's part of it that follows God's gracious intervention. But what happens is that on the cross, Jesus doesn't just make possible a way of salvation. He secures for all time the salvation of his people. Salvation is secured. It's won. It's, it's won by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Friends, don't misunderstand me. Yes, you must make a willing choice to trust in Christ. You must decide to turn away from sin and follow Jesus. But friends, know that ultimately what saves you is not your decision, but the work of Jesus on the cross, whereby he won the victory over sin and death and evil. Third, I want you to see that salvation is a present reality and a promised future. It's both. It's, it's both tenses. He says there, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again, not just to this promised future as glorious as that is, but to a living hope. There is a present reality, a here now aspect of our salvation. And then there is also this promised future. He says there at the end of verse five that this salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. So there's a, a sort of here and now aspect to being a Christian. And there's a future reality, a consummation, a final state of being a Christian. And friends, if we see this, this explains so much that salvation is here now but yet it's still yet to be fully revealed. And friends, that explains so much. I want you to think of salvation in sort of three phases in a sense. This is a bit of an oversimplification, but think about it. The moment that you trust in Christ, because of God's grace, you are justified. In that moment, the Bible says you're justified. That he has taken your sin and he's removed it, and he has taken Jesus' righteousness and he's given it to you. In that moment, you are justified. And then begins a process of sanctification, growing in Christ. So the moment that you become a Christian, the next moment that you wake up, the next day that you wake up, you're still battling with sin, right? I mean, we're not all of a sudden perfect, perfect. So that is sanctification. But then the Bible speaks of that there is this final state of a Christian. The Bible calls it 
glorification, that we will be glorified in Christ someday when we will no longer struggle with sin, that we will no longer battle with the flesh or the enemy. And there is a present reality and a a promised future for a Christian. Friends, if you understand this, it explains really so much about the Christian life. It explains why we still struggle with sin. It explains why if you're not a Christian and one of your main objections to Christianity is the hypocrisy of Christians, it explains to you why that may be because Christians are not finally and fully glorified before God. And so your charge may be, well, Christians are inconsistent. Yeah, you're right. We're all, to some degree, inconsistent because the glory that will be revealed, the final state of sinlessness before a righteous and holy Savior who has given us His righteousness has not yet finally been revealed. And so, to some degree, we are all hypocrites. Friends, if you're not a believer and you're here just investigating Christianity. Know that not everybody that calls themselves a Christian actually is a Christian, especially in our region. Yes, um, we, we cannot live um, for Jesus without obeying him to some degree. But know that a Christian is not a person who's all of a sudden been made perfect Know that there will be a, a level of hypocrisy and inconsistently, consistency in every Christian's life. And for you to look at that and notice that, you're actually noticing the very thing that has driven that person to Christ because they know that they have no hope for obeying God outside of Christ. So I, I encourage you, maybe if that's been a roadblock for you, to look for a humble group of people who seem to be constantly... And, and, and viciously, earnestly repenting of their sins and confessing those sins one to another. And then examine the Christian life in light of that humble example, not the merely nominal or cultural Christianity that you sort of see branded in our culture. Look, look for a group of people who are acquainted with the fact that their only hope is in Christ. And yes, they're still struggling, but they have been made right in Christ. And they are moving in a sort of riptide of God's grace towards what they will be and already are, in a sense, in Christ. Look for that type of, of church. Look for that type of people. And Crosspoint, let's be that type of community that is aware of our lives and how our lives and our humility and our continued confession of our need for Jesus either commends or discredits the gospel. Let us realize that, that God's primary way of displaying his truth and love to an onlooking world is through the life of a local church who a bunch of humble people who roll up their sins, who are real about their sin, and who actually just continually confess their need for, for sin over and over, their need for Christ over victory over their sin over and over to one another. I think one of the problems of American church culture is that it forces us to act like mature in Christ way too early. You know? I mean, there, you, know, you come into a group of people maybe like this or in a church service in the deep south where you know everybody just kind of assumes that everybody knows what's going on and there's this sort of unspoken language, an unspoken way of doing things. 
And there's something in us that just sort of kicks in like, oh, I've got to act like I know what's going on. And God forbid I actually be real with where I am, even if I just came to Christ, because this group of people might, you know, you're like the kid who pees in the pool. Everybody just gets out. That was a terrible analogy. I'm sorry. (laughs) But you know, it's, it's like you can't be real with how you really are because there's this strange religious pressure that forces you to act like you have it all together. But friends, that's not what Peter's saying here. He's saying that there's this future, final glorification. And right now we're in this process of sanctification. And we are not who we will be. But thank God we are not who we once were in Christ. And so we should have this sort of strange, gritty, grace and humility towards one another. Friend, if you notice hypocrisy in other Christians and in this church, welcome to the merry band of hypocrites. Friends, that is part of what it means to be a Christian. And when people are real about that, And when they strive to create a culture where it is okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay not okay, and they're humble about it and they roll up their sleeves, something beautiful and authentic happens. It's a ring of gospel truth because there's this merry band. It's people from the island of misfit toys, man. That's my favorite. I can't wait for December because all those claymation things come out and the only one I like is the one about the island of misfit toys. That's what Christians are like. They are like little toys that are jacked up who got missing pieces and eyes bulging out and springs and missing legs and unstitched seams. That's who we are. And when we're real about that, What we end up doing ultimately is pointing towards Jesus who it is okay to not be okay with, but Jesus never leaves you not okay. And that becomes just this beautiful aroma to an onlooking world. To a bunch of people who previously charged us with being hypocrites, but they're like, oh, oh, no, they're not hypocrites. There's a place for me on that island because I'm a misfit toy too. Salvation is a, a present reality that certainly should inform how we live. We can't just keep living however we want. But it's a process that points towards a promised future. And then finally, here, I want us to see about a promised future is that salvation is guarded. Notice these beautiful words, this mix of God's providence and our responsibility. Salvation is guarded by God through faith. So notice this weaving together of God's sovereign care of his people and our responsibility to live and work and follow him. So he gives us faith, and through this faith, it frees us to love God more than the world. So, so God guards us, and I, and I heard this put this way by uh, John Piper about a year ago. The guys and I were at together for the gospel, this huge conference in Louisville, Kentucky, and we heard John Piper preach about how God preserves his saints, and he says that he keeps them by enabling them to do self-keeping things. And so here we see that God guards our salvation. He keeps us. Verse 5, we are 
by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So God guards us. He ensures that we reach and realize our inheritance by enabling us to do self-guarding things. And he takes our faith and he plants us in a community of people who care for each other and watch for each other. And he uses the means of grace of the church and the word of God to be the thing that preserves us, to be the thing that keeps us in the faith. Salvation is guarded by God through faith. So friends, nobody can say, well, I responded to an altar call 14 years ago, and now I'm just living however I want, and once saved, always saved, so I'm, I'm good. I'm good. No, that's not what it means to be born again. To be born again means that God has given you faith to now begin this grace-filled march towards your inheritance in Christ to become more like Jesus. And he gives you the ability to guard that salvation even though you may have incredibly rough patches along the way. He gives you the ability to stay in the faith by exercising the faith that he's given you. So we have a promised future in Christ. Those that are trusting in Christ have a promised future in Him. Unbeliever, let me just ask you this question. Do you believe this? If you're maybe here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, do you believe that there's life after death? Do you believe that you will stand before a holy and righteous Creator and that your only hope of that meeting going well is not your own relative morality, but Jesus' work on the cross. Friends, that's the message of the Bible, is that all of us are sinners. All of us have rebelled in some way against God, who is holy and righteous. None of us are good. I think that, I think that sort of rings in all of our hearts. None of us would want to sort of hold our own lives up in light and say, examine me as a human worthy of, you know, commendation by the creator of the universe. I think that sort of rings true in all of us. We are created, and we have all rebelled, and we will all stand before our creator one day. The Bible is clear about that. Friends, where's your hope if you're not yet a believer in Jesus? What are you hoping in? Well, the Bible says that our only hope is not in what we have done, but in Jesus, who is God became man, who lived a perfect life where we have all rebelled. Jesus lives a perfect life and is completely obeyed. And he's lived the one and only life that is worthy to be held up in examination as completely perfect, completely obeying God in every way. And Jesus holds up that perfect, obedient life, and he lays it on the cross as a sacrifice to, in our stead, substitute himself and received the punishment that we should have received. And he absorbs the punishment. He absorbs the holy wrath of God the Father and then rises again in victory over sin and death in the grave. And all those who trust in what Jesus has done and his death and his resurrection, his perfect life, and not in their own relative morality, will receive this promised inheritance. Friends, do you believe that? 
That's the message of the gospel. That's what it means to be born again. Friends, you, you must believe that. You must believe that. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you have more questions about that, the pastors every Sunday are hanging around the front to, after service to just talk to you about any questions that you may have or anybody that you know to be a Christian to understand this message. I encourage you to talk more about that. But you must, friends, you must not improve your life. You must not clean up yourself. You can't do those things. You must believe in Jesus. Believer, a little application for you about this promised future. If we really believe this, how might this inform how we live? Remember the question at the beginning, inheriting $1.6 billion? Well, if we really lived in the light of our promised future that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more tears, but God, an unending joy in God forever. If we could live in light of that, how might this change the way we live? Would we be less anxious? Maybe we'd be more free to think less of ourselves and more of others. Maybe you're a young mother and the grip of Facebook envy wouldn't control your life just as much. And that child who sleeps through the night or was potty trained months before yours, that wouldn't just drive you so much because you realize that that's not ultimately what life is all about. Maybe you're a young lieutenant and the fear of taking over a platoon or getting through ranger school and getting a silly little idolatrous tab on your shoulder would drive you less and you'd be more driven by your promised future in Christ. Maybe you're in your prime older years and that retirement and that 401k you've been fixating on wouldn't consume you as much as it does. And maybe you wouldn't be as angry at the current state of affairs of our economy because you realize that that is just a mere earthly inheritance. And the inheritance that counts is the one in Christ that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Maybe you're young and single and everyone around you is getting married and having babies. And maybe you realizing that your inheritance in Christ should remind you that life is not just about earthly, relational, or reproductive fulfillment. And maybe reading these verses might help you set your hope on a promised future rather than what you perceive to be a disappointing reality. Friends, we could all fill in the blanks with all, all our examples. At our core, we are all prone to idolatry. And what Peter is saying here is that this promised future awaits those who are in Christ. And then notice his logic, quicker now, a present reality. He says in verse 6, In this you can rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I think Paul, or I'm sorry, Peter's logic here is that this promised future of inheritance in Christ with God forever, for eternity, should drive and inform our present reality even if our present reality is marked and grieved by various trials. So what does, what does Peter say about this present reality? A few things is one, because of our promised future inheritance in Christ, we can endure present trials. <laughs> so if I knew, think about back to my analogy at the beginning, if I knew that in a week, I was getting $1.6 billion, that would make me less anxious about maybe a temporary financial loss tomorrow because I know what awaits me. And Peter's logic here is that because of what awaits us, that should put steel in our spine and dig deep the foundation of our trust and anchor our souls no matter what we may presently be going through. Secondly, I think we see in this, this little paragraph here, these few verses, that trials prove the genuineness of our faith. Look at verse 7. It says that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that there's this sense that when we are tested by trials, it authenticates, it proves that Jesus is real to us. I mean, come on. Any teenage boy that could ever put two plates on the bench press bar, you know, isn't that just like a, 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 a like that's a, that's like a, a momentous occasion in the life of a teenage boy to be able to put two 45 pound plates on each side. What is that? 225. And it just seems kind of impressive. I got a couple of young guys giving me a north south here. They know what I'm talking about. And when you can finally bench 225, you just, you just want to show everybody because it, it proves that you're not a pencil neck anymore. And the logic here that Paul uses is that trials and joy, the trials and, 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 and difficulties actually prove our strength in Christ. And there's this sort of dual fruit that comes out of trials. One is our assurance. Like, it sort of proves us like, like, yes, Jesus, like I've been through this difficult situation or I'm going through this difficult situation and I'm still clinging to Jesus and it's, it's a kind of strange encouragement to us, isn't it? Like, wow, like, like I really believe what I say I believe. And then the second fruit of that is Jesus gets glory because we display to an onlooking world the surpassing worth of Christ. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about affliction. I love this sentence. Jesus, or he says, the Lord's mercy often rides to the door of our hearts by the black horse of affliction. Jesus uses the whole range of our experiences to wean us from earth and woo us to heaven. 
My friends, one of my favorite things to do as a pastor is to sit with people that are joining the church and hear their stories of how they came to Christ and hear the story really of their life and their testimony. And countless times I've sat in that room there with couches in it in our office and heard the story of God's grace in people's life. And often it includes incredible trial and tragedy and pain. And friends, do you know how encouraging it is to hear people tell about a deep, devastating moment in their lives that God actually used to deepen their faith in Him and make Jesus clear? Just this week, I listened to a young lady tell me about a horrific attack on her years ago and how God used that to make Jesus clearer and more beautiful and more lovely to her. It gave her this deep assurance and it glorified Jesus. And Peter is saying that because we are anchored in him, we can endure even the most difficult of present realities because trials prove the genuineness of our faith. Thirdly, trials deepen our joy in and love for Jesus. Quickly, when we go through a difficult trial and an onlooking world sees us trusting in Christ despite our current situation, it displays the surpassing worth of Jesus to an onlooking world. It causes us to love Jesus more because we long for that day when we will be weaned from this earth and wooed to heaven. And then finally, fourthly there, I think it's just good to be encouraged while we're suffering. Look at Peter's words there in verse 8. He talks about trials, and then it's almost like he takes us a little aside, and he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. He's not saying, he's not, that's not a command. Peter's not saying, and when you're going through trials, you should love him. No, he's actually commending his readers, these Gentile readers in Turkey, that living in modern-day Turkey. He's commending them because he realizes that he, as a witness of the resurrected Jesus, is writing to a group of people who had never actually laid eyes physically on Jesus. And he is in sort of awe. He's encouraging their faith. He's saying, oh, I commend you. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you're, you don't now see him, you believe in him. He's encouraging them. It's just good to be encouraged when you're going through a trial. Maybe your mission this month might be to just have your head on a swivel and just see somebody around you that may be going through a difficult time and to saddle up next to them and just say, man, I Praise God that you love Jesus in the middle of this. I see the love of Christ in you, and I am encouraged by that. That's what Peter is saying to these, to these people. Well, this promised future strengthens us for this present reality. And as a final encouragement, Peter says that this was predicted long ago. Listen to verses 10, 11, and 12 again. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied, so he's talking about the Old Testament prophets, He's talking about Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel and Hosea and all of these Old Testament prophets who received God's word that these prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. 
It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So two thoughts quickly about this this prediction long ago. Friends, this is a great encouragement that God is in complete control of the past, the present, and the future. The Old Testament is not just a story, of, of a collection of stories about how we should act in morality. It is all pointing towards the salvation that will come in Jesus. So the story of David and Goliath is pointing towards this future king who will come and rescue us from the giant of sin. The story of Moses at the bank of the sea there is not about leadership. It's about a coming deliverer who will finally deliver us from captivity, not to a political nation, Egypt, but to the reality of sin. Every Old Testament story is pointing towards Jesus's salvation, towards salvation in him and what he has done. And friends, this gives us great confidence that God is in complete control, promising an inheritance, and then fulfilling an inheritance in Jesus. And secondly, friends, know this, that the Bible is not a collection of morality tales, but it is about the glory of God and Christ's work made known by the Spirit. And Peter says that this salvation, this work of Christ, this really, this almost scandalous message of the gospel that God takes on the sin of his people through Jesus' work on the cross and defeats their sin and rises in victory over sin and the grave and is risen now reigning over all that is. The Bible says that angels, heavenly beings, long to gaze into the very thing that Christians are experiencing now. How wonderful is our salvation. Friends, how does this promised future inform your present reality? Does it? If you're a Christian, I want you to think about the most difficult thing that you have ever been through or the most difficult thing that you're enduring right now or the thing that you are most anxious about in the future. How does, how should your inheritance and the promise of your future in Christ inform that? How would staring and dwelling on and basking in that imperishable unfading, undefiled inheritance, that living hope secured for you, not by your own goodness, but by Jesus' goodness, how would staring at that and drilling that deep in your soul inform the way you view your present reality? Would you be less anxious? Would you be less idolatrous? Would you be more free to worry less about you and more about displaying the surpassing worth of Jesus? Would it wean you 
from the present and woo you to your future in Christ. Think about that. How might that look in your life? What might you need to confess and repent and be honest about? And say, Jesus, because of that promised future, I can endure any present reality and display the surpassing worth of Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to respond to your word, I pray that you would take these massive but yet simple truths and show us ourselves in light of them. For those of us who are anxious and nervous grieved by various trials. Lord, would you lift our gaze? Would you be our glory and the lifter of our head so that we would see our present in light of our future? And would that anchor us and drive us like a, a magnet towards heaven, towards our inheritance with you forever? Lord, for my friends in this room who are not yet trusting in Christ, would you give them the faith that they need? Would you give them new birth in Jesus? Would you give them life so that they can even exercise the faith that you command? And would they turn away from trusting in themselves, turn away from trusting in earthly inheritance that moths and rust destroy? And would they look to Jesus who bore the weight of sin on his shoulders and extinguished it and satisfied your righteousness for all those who would ever believe in him. Lord, would you give new birth to people that came into this room dead in sin and self? And would they look to Jesus and be born again. And Lord, as we now, as your people, respond to your word, would we, would we make much of Jesus in our lives this week as we remember our inheritance in him? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.